Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. On Christmas Eve, George Ciccarello Marr, a professor of political science at Drexel University, tweeted, All I want for Christmas is white genocide. On Christmas, he doubled down with, To clarify, when the whites were massacred during the Haitian Revolution, that was a good thing indeed. In response, Pepe the Frog-aligned internet creatures from the white supremacist alt-right made him a target, and George, the father of a young child, received a deluge of death threats. Perhaps even more concerning was the response from Drexel's administration, which almost immediately released a statement calling his tweets utterly reprehensible, deeply disturbing, and stating that they do not in any way reflect the values of the university. As George has noted, it's obvious that he wasn't calling for the murder of all white people. Rather, as he wrote, white genocide is an idea invented by white supremacists and used to denounce everything from interracial relationships to multicultural policies. George, welcome to The Dig. I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me, guys. So I guess let's begin with the facts that the people who attacked you either cynically ignored or ignorantly didn't understand. What's white genocide and what did you tweet? Well, I think the first thing to be said is that white genocide is actually not a thing. And so this is, this is an essential part of the story as it unfolds. Uh, white genocide is a paranoid conspiracy theory uh, held by white supremacists who, on the one hand, believe in race as a biological reality and believe that whites are under existential threat by, you know, multicultural policies and by intermarriage. And every time a sort of mixed baby is born, that the white race suffers a fatal blow. Um, so these are really the kind of people um, that traffic in this idea of white genocide. Um, and these are the kind of people who at the same time wanted to take my tweet, um, which sought to mock white genocide um, and, and to interpret it uh, literally um, as, as though I were actually wishing for the death of all white people. Um, and so there, there's certainly a cynicism here, a bad faith and conscious misrepresentation that was then fed, um, you know, fed into the public sphere through websites like Breitbart and into, you know, the, the, the realm of Fox News, where a whole other level of misunderstanding um, could then occur. Uh, people who simply didn't care to look up the phrase or figure out what it meant or, or put any effort whatsoever into understanding it. When all you've got to do is actually type white genocide into Google and the first result explains pretty clearly what, you know, what kind of paranoid, uh, you know, fantasy this is. So what happened after the tweet, after it started bouncing around the far right media echo chamber? Well, the mechanics of this, I think, are really important. Um, certain websites, uh, American Thinker, um, you know, Daily Caller, uh, began to push this story. The Breitbart um, article um, was a big part of this uh, mainstreaming. Um, and then the other part that I think is essential to understand and that people will understand going back to Gamergate um, are, is the function of Twitter and the function of sort of Reddit um, discussion groups in which an organized campaign against myself uh, my colleagues, my university, was uh, was developed and was put forward, leading to, 
you know, thousands of emails being sent, leading to hundreds of phone calls and threats being made. Um, and this was incredibly well organized by these far-right sectors that have really been, uh, in a quiet way, building and developing their capacity to engage in this kind of systematic harassment. And in your case, it functioned uh, effectively to a certain extent, the harassment campaign, because the university initially released a response that um, wasn't exactly entirely supportive of you. Is that right? Right. No, it was not supportive in the least, and it was released very, very quickly. Um, And I think uh, it's difficult for universities because they're not prepared yet to handle these kind of organized campaigns. What they see is a huge number of complaints and emails and, you know, um, other messages coming in, and they feel as though they must respond without asking the question of what even is this about or the question of why is this happening. Um, And these are difficult things to, you know, to navigate. And I think the universities need to be better at figuring out uh, how to interpret what is going on in the world. They're sort of torn between focusing on the campus, defending academic freedom and speech and other things on campus, but also are being thrown into a situation in which they're being pushed and pulled uh, by other forces. For example, with the Richard Spencer and the Milo speaking tours, um, universities are struggling, as Berkeley is um, right now, over how to deal with these demands from the world at large. A few days ago, you wrote me that um, the response to your tweet was in part related to what you called a structured slash voluntary misunderstanding of the tweet by a public already primed to feel like white people are victims. Um, what is that structured under misunderstanding? How is it being structured? And what has conditioned members of the public to perceive white people as victims? It seems like there's a lot going on there, dating back at least, but probably much further um, to the mobilization against housing integration in major cities and the anti-civil rights backlash to the unapologetically white identity politics that we see flourishing now with the new Trump administration. Um, can you can you unpack a little what you meant about that that structured misunderstanding? Right. So starting in the 50s and 60s, but especially in the 70s and 80s, there was a dramatic transformation in the United States in which the state went from being something that provided public goods for uh, primarily white people um, to being something that was interpreted as taking things away from white people and giving them to undeserving poor and brown and black people. This is something that Kianga Yamada-Taylor tracks very well um, in, in her new book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Um, and, it, you know, in, in terms of this emergence of what's called a colorblind narrative, um, if you believe that the world truly operates in a colorblind way, which has become the official narrative since the 70s and 80s in the United States, then you, you are primed to think that anyone who's asking for special privileges or anyone who's asking for anything from the state is demanding special privileges. For example, black people suffering the weight of mass incarceration and poverty, um, asking uh, you know, for uh, greater equality, are asking for something not equal but actually special, something, you know, a privilege that other people don't have. And in, in particular, with reference to um, affirmative action policies, you have this narrative emerge of white victimhood in which, um, you know, one, you know, say one particularly um, interesting case is University of Texas in a a sort of mediocre white student being denied entrance um, gives rise to the presumption uh, that she's been discriminated against because she's white. 
and to be totally brutally clear, this is absurd, it's nonsense. The idea that white people, not only in the United States, but in the world, have been systematically victimized by anyone is absurd and is a fantasy. And it is actually very much uh, complicit with and goes hand in hand with this white genocide fantasy, although it's a very different you know, manifestation of that. And that's where I think the public is primed to think of these things, because if, if if I heard someone saying something about, you know, not even white genocide, but anything, you know, in terms of attacking white people, killing white people on Twitter, because people say wild things on Twitter all the time, I wouldn't think twice because it's not a serious thing. It's not a serious reality. Whereas if, of course, someone were advocating uh, black genocide, Jewish genocide, Native American genocide, which... Twitter, for some reason, is very, you know, amenable to, and, and, you know, this happens all the time. These are people speaking to real, threatening, historical, ongoing realities uh, that we need to take very, very seriously. Um, but in this narrative of white victimhood, suddenly white people are primed, as I put it, to think of themselves as victims, uh, and therefore to interpret even, you know, small tweets or tweets they don't understand in that framework. Does Does white victimhood serve as a compelling... Um, explanation of why people have the problems that they do in part because people do have serious problems that don't necessarily have anything to do with them being white um, and there aren't being there aren't compelling other competing compelling explanations that are reaching a lot of people if the question is whether they're compelling to those people I think they certainly are and I think that's of course uh, part and parcel of the Trump phenomenon um, but I think as some of the best explanations of structural racism put it, you know, there are no people who are victimized and who are suffering um, the conditions they suffer because they are white. Um, and that's, I think, where the real difference is. And I think this is part of the barrier that needs to be broken down um, when it comes to, on the one hand, explaining the election, speaking to people who have been abandoned by decades of policy, um, people who maintain the most paltry wages of whiteness, in the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, um, where they simply feel a little better by virtue of not being a person of color um, and being to, able to identify themselves with power elites uh, in, on a symbolic level, but from which they reap absolutely no benefits. So you're not ex exactly like a mild-mannered presence on Twitter, though in real life, uh, I should note that you're a very kind and considerate person. Um, <laughs> but you like to tweet stuff that's uh, going to provoke. Um, did you think that this one would blow up the way that it did, or was this just sort of like an everyday uh, George Chikorelamar tweet? I mean, I think Twitter is a very certain kind of place where these things happen, right? It, in some ways, it rewards provocation, uh, but in some ways, what's good about it is that it's a space to provoke sharp debates and conversations, and, um, and, and in that sense, it, it can be a very useful space. Um, I'm no stranger to these kind of controversies when it comes to Twitter. You know, I've gotten in trouble for some tweets before, um, and, and yet there was no way to predict that this one would blow up in the way that it did. Um, because there was no way or, you know, we had yet to see, I had yet to see the deployment of, the of this sort of mechanized outrage um, that we saw in this case. Um, you know, what you would normally see would be a little bit of outrage. Maybe I would get a call from my, you know, department head saying, oh, we've gotten some, you know, some emails of people who are upset by a tweet that you sent, um, but you would not have seen what we saw. Um, and I think it has everything also to do with the moment. We were talking about a, a period 
um, directly between Trump being elected and being inaugurated, uh, in which all of the hopes uh, and aspirations of the far right um, were, were reaching a boiling point. Um, the white supremacist right in the United States was incredibly excited when Trump was elected. And this is why Richard Spencer would stand up and say things about the election representing white men taking the country back, um, saying in an unveiled way what Trump would say in a veiled way. Um, and so I think they saw this really as a, you know, as a trial run of, of this kind of harassment campaign. It's not the first by any means. Um, in academia, outside of academia, people, in, in particular people of color, in particular black women, have been harassed uh, and attacked over tweets that were more mild-mannered than my own. Um, and so this is nothing new, but I think it does take place in a very specific historical context where the Breitbarts of the world very literally have a foot in the White House with Steve Bannon. Um, and they, they are doing their best to push forward struggles against the left outside of, but also within academia. And that's why these cases are very, very important, because and, you know, if they can provoke a reaction by a university against the professor with this manufactured outrage, then they've succeeded. And they did succeed, um, at least in the short term, in doing that. And you saw websites like the Daily Stormer celebrating that they had provoked a reaction, that they had forced a response from a university. Um, and that's a very dangerous precedent indeed when, to put it in its most basic terms, organized Nazis uh, create a campaign of outrage. And that leads to a response by a university institution. That's very, very dangerous indeed. What exactly is the role of, or the roles of Twitter in politics, both for the left, the right, for the president of the United States that seems to mostly directly communicate to people vis-a-vis -vis Twitter? I think a lot of people have in the past seen it as sort of a distraction um, or or something kind of superficial, but I think in in both your case and what we've been dealing with under Trump has demonstrated that it has quite real life consequences and it is a pretty important part of the fabric of political communication in this country. I think that's absolutely you know true, um, and I think Twitter at this point is playing different roles for different groups. Um, you know, people have, have long noted, of course, the fact that. Um, Twitter is, you know, a, a widely preferred communication means for many black Americans um, and that black Twitter has become a powerful voice and an essential voice uh, in being able to push forward certain arguments and, and criticize people where necessary. Um, at the same time, on the flip side of that, you have Twitter. And I think if we're talking about sheer numbers, you know, you have Twitter as a breeding ground for Nazi organizing, um, for white supremacists, for racists. Um, and the argument by some, and it's a convincing argument, is that this has become really the hegemonic force in the Twitter sphere, um, that white supremacists have built such strength um, in Twitter that they kind of run the show at this point. And, and it's on the basis of this that you have, of course, some high-profile tweeters leaving, abandoning Twitter, not wanting to have anything to do with it anymore. For Trump, it's a bully pulpit. Um, the bully pulpit has always existed um, for the president. And yet this is an unmediated uh, right-wing populist bully pulpit. And this is not, you know, inconsequential when we are talking about the connection between that bully pulpit and these kind of harassment campaigns, because we've already seen how Trump tweeting uh, leads to, encourages, incites 
um, harassment and violence against people across the country. Um, and this is playing out in a multiplicity of different ways. Uh, and the fact that now the bully pulpit is merging with this sort of harassment mechanism um, is incredibly frightening. Um, you know, and, and if Trump says something bad about you on Twitter, uh, you know, you will immediately get death threats phone calls, emails, messages, um, and, and it's a really, really scary um, and fascistic phenomenon that we're experiencing and witnessing today. And with Trump in particular, it's this bizarre phenomenon of him uh, standing in between the old media of television and the new media of social media and Twitter, sitting there watching cable news for hours every day, and when he sees something that provokes him, then tweeting it, which then drives the cable news coverage and so on. Absolutely. And, and so much of this, you know, so much news media today is simply uh, trawling Twitter um, for what, you know, the most recent outrage uh, that has emerged that, you know, we're, we're getting into this sort of tight circuit. Um, but again, form is nothing without content. In other words, uh, you know, Obama tweeting or another president tweeting or someone else using the bully pulpit in a certain way simply doesn't have the same meaning uh, without this sort of white supremacist content right under the surface, because that's where the violence comes in, right? Uh, that's where, you know, the real incitement and worry develops. Now, you successfully mounted your the defense of your, your tweet or tweets, um, first, obviously, by noting that the alt-right people that came after you were wrong, but also on the basis of academic freedom. What do you believe that academic freedom entails, especially now that we're living under Trump? It's a very fraught category. Um, I think academic freedom is an essential shield that we need, that we cannot relinquish, because it allows us, for example, to speak freely, despite the political pressures that are already beginning to come down upon us um, as academics. Um, however, I think it's very important to distinguish between academic freedom on the one hand and free speech on the other. Um, I think to even refer to my tweets in terms of academic freedom is a little worrying because it implies um, the idea that universities uh, should be referring in any way or discussing the um, speech of faculty that happens outside of the academic sphere. Um, academic freedom in the classroom uh, means uh, allowing students and faculty to engage in thoughtful uh, conversations. Um, but this has also become a route of attack for this far right that wants to infiltrate the classroom, record conversations, and to even use uh, anti-discrimination law against faculty uh, by claiming that students uh, don't feel safe, by claiming that they feel uh, discriminated against. In other words, by using laws that are meant to protect people of color and women against these sort of hurt white feelings uh, in the classroom. Um, and, and this is dangerous as well. And this is where the, the whole question gets very complicated because, as I said, you've got people trying to provoke with these campus tours, you know, Milo, um, uh, Richard Spencer, trying to be invited to campuses to provoke a controversy over whether or not they're allowed to speak and trying to frame that as a free speech question. And here I think the left needs to be very, very careful because there are some arguments out there that are what I would understand to be free speech absolutist arguments that say free speech is a primary, uh, primary freedom and that the left needs to first and foremost defend free speech. But the left has to first and foremost defend a program of progressive and radical transformation and change. Free speech, academic freedom are shields and yet we need swords to move forward. Um, we need to be able to make arguments um, that, you know, about how Richard Spencer is not welcome to speak on university campuses. 
um, how he's welcome, of course, under the law to, without state intervention, spout his garbage on the street corner, but that he's not required to be granted the, uh, the, you know, the weight of a university platform or the recognition of a university platform, um, and that people who will be inevitably victimized by the violence that he espouses have every right to go out and make that impossible to prevent him from speaking in whatever way necessary. And what is, where do, should what, should that line be drawn? Is it drawn around people like Richard Spencer who are overt white supremacists, or is it drawn also around uh, people like Charles Murray, the author of the racist book, The Bell Curve, but who, you know, has, you know, full academic pedigrees? What, how, how should, um, I agree with what you're saying, but I also wonder about how one makes the an institution the arbiter of of allowed speech without 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 slipping into a place where that uh, power is is used against someone like you. I think it's a very difficult question, but it's one that we need to confront. You know, if you're talking about the bell curve, you're talking about people with academic pedigrees making absurd pseudoscientific arguments as well. Uh, you've sure. got cases of, of Nobel you know, Prize winning scientists um, making white supremacist statements that have no basis in, you know, in, the, in the, even the kind of rationality at which they've proven themselves very expert. So I think these things are difficult. I think um, recognizing the right to protest um, these things and these statements and these platforms is always justifiable. I think students in particular, um, you know, in this whole situation with myself, the voices that no one has really asked about are the voices of black and brown students um, and whether or not they feel safe um, on campuses where these kinds of speech are, uh, you know, are legitimized and are justified. Um, and so I think it's recognizing their ability to play a role in these conversations and say, well, no, this is actually uh, not something that I'm required to respect. Um, it, you know, if you've got a university inviting someone to speak, uh, again, this is not strictly a free speech issue. This is a question of whether or not universities should be legitimizing that speech, justifying it, giving it a sort of tacit stamp of approval, or at least of legitimacy. Um, and yet, we're talking about views that are reprehensible and illegitimate. But we're also in a moment where it's difficult because the, represents, the, the reprehensible and the illegitimate have taken over institutions of political power. Um, and, you know, and have done so through the institutions of the Electoral College. So it's, people are struggling, I think, justifiably with trying to figure out how it is to, on the one hand, deem something illegitimate, but recognize that it has institutional, uh, you, know, you know, legitimacy. Um, the fact that Richard Spencer may have a right to speak versus the fact that we actually need to build an anti-fascist culture um, that does not recognize the content of that speech as legitimate um, at all. To what degree um, are, are are your rights or or other academics' rights um, to to express themselves? To what degree are those rights that you have as academics, and to what degree are they protection of workers' free speech rights more generally, vis-a-vis their bosses? Um, Corey Robin, in a um, post defending you, wrote. Over the years, it has become a pillar of our organizing that no one should be punished by his or her employer for political speech off the job. This is a cornerstone of academic freedom, but many of us believe it should be extended to all forms of employment. People still tend to view employment in the workplace as part of civil society, a sphere of personal association and sociability. It's not. It's a regime of governance. And in the United States, it's been one of the most potent means by which freedom of speech 
including political speech, has been abridged. Um, so to what, to what degree do you see this as a, as a workers' rights issue, and to what degree do you see it as peculiar to academia? Uh, it's certainly somewhere in between the two. You know, academia is a kind of strange world where we, That's for on sure. the one hand, <laughs> can speak, you know, we can speak more freely than some. We enjoy certain protections. Um, it's also a space in which we are, you know, we have access to students and we have classroom conversations. Um, and so I think there are sort of a multiplicity of aspects of it that become very, very complex. Um, and so I think, I think that point is very, very well taken. And it's become a, a really fraught point in the present as well because you've got people for example saying incredibly racist things on social media and then you have them losing their jobs over uh, those statements um, and I think on the one hand there's a principle of defending speech in the workplace on the other hand there are questions of whether or not co-workers should tolerate a co you know someone in the in that workplace um, who, who is expressing contempt for them right um, and I think these become very very difficult questions I think um, one thing that is essential to realize is that it's important not to empower the bosses to deal with these questions through their own, you know, their own authority and their own prerogative. Um, and, and that's a really important point. How is it that we can maybe express, you know, our, our critiques of some of this workplace speech um, without demanding uh, that they be fired or without demanding that the bosses be, you know, empowered to judge what is acceptable and what is unacceptable speech. But I don't think these are easy questions. I think they're very, very difficult questions. And as I said, they get even more complicated when it comes to, to academia because you've got, on the one hand, some people who enjoy protections, uh, not everyone, though, um, and, you know, the increasing adjunctification of uh, academic labor means that increasingly more and more people in the classroom teaching students do not enjoy any kind of formal protection, and yet they enjoy academic freedom as well. Uh, and yet, um, you know, it's not simply that tenure... Uh, is the only guarantee academic freedom and the, the sort of uh, policies, for example, of the American University, you know, Association of University Professors is pretty explicit in the fact that no matter who you are, um, you, you know, you enjoy this kind of freedom when it comes to on campus or in the classroom, uh, you know, protections. Um, and, and so these, you know, these things are very, very complicated. And I think we need to be attentive to the fact that they exceed academia. And we also have to pay very close attention to the fact that um, you know, the, the, the sort of contingent labor crisis that's emerging in academia means that these struggles are going to be more difficult. I'm lucky enough to have tenure, uh, but in many, many, um, in, in fact, the majority in some institutions of faculty do not. Um, and as these fights emerge, we need to pay particular attention to contingent faculty, to temporary faculty, and to those faculty who, while enjoying academic freedom rights, may not always see those rights uh, upheld in practice. Yeah, I agree that it's these are very difficult questions because I, th I think that the free speech on the left is sometimes um, misrepresented as sort of a, a liberal value when in fact I think it's a radically democratic one in the sense that when one makes the state or a boss uh, the arbiter of permitted speech, it feeds the boss's power of, of control and exploitation over the worker and the state's um, most authoritarian and carceral powers to surveil, police, and punish. Um, and I think you're pointing to an interesting tension of how to how to fight speech that is that is truly dangerous, like that articulated by our president and Richard Spencer, um, without um, without kind of giving the state's worst, um, most dangerous um, features m more of what it what what they want. <laughs> 
Absolutely, and I think uh, you know, I think you got you hit it right on the head when you said that it, there's a radically democratic element here because I think there's nothing more radically democratic than thousands of students. Uh, showing up and making it utterly impossible for Richard Spencer or Milo or all these other far-right speakers um, to to enjoy the platform that a university provides. Um, and I think that is well and fully within their own uh, expressive rights. Um, and I think we need to think harder about how it is that, you know, that we build a left platform in which free speech is taken seriously, but which doesn't become, uh, in, in many ways, a, a hindrance. You know, you can't have a left that says that we should allow Milo to get up and speak and harass and encourage violence be, you know, be brought down on a trans student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, um, and the left, the left stands by silently, right? This is not in any way a viable left politics. And so we need to understand how speech can fit in with our substantive concerns um, and how, for example, to demand the ability to express uh, radically egalitarian politics um, and to demand the ability to have an equal platform for reactionary, you know, genocidal white supremacist arguments is not the same thing. Well, obviously, George, this brings us to the question of Nazi punching. Um, now, I haven't seen many on the left um, actually having a problem with Richard Spencer being punched, quite to the contrary. But it does bring up a question of the role of violence in politics and of free speech more generally. Um, and obviously, this is also a question uh, that requires attention to context. First, tell me what you think the political function was of Richard Spencer getting punched in the face and that going viral? I mean, I think this is really important and the question is well posed because I think what's being missed is the fact that this is a praxis, right? That this is a, it's not simply a performance, it's not an expression of frustration, it's an actual political practice that is constructive and creative. Um, And what it, you know, the effects that punching Nazis creates is, on the one hand, as Richard Spencer, you know, through his own sort of absurd inability to think strategically, has admitted um, it has made his life a living hell already. Um, He's admitted um, that it's making it very difficult for them to organize. He's admitted, in, in other words, everything that many of us have said about how Nazis need to be treated. Um, and about this sort of famous apocryphal quote from Hitler that says, that, you know, if someone had recognized early on and crushed our movement with the most brutal of violence, then we would never have been able to grow. Um, and this is where you find not only historical Nazism and fascism growing in the context of, you know, what Carl Schmidt and Gramsci, uh, you know, on right and left recognized as the inability of liberalism to grapple with real tensions and contradictions. It's, it's sort of, uh, you know, frozen, you know, um, you know, inability to, to face these problems head on and to offer real solutions is a breeding ground for these kind of movements. Um, and so the political effect is to, first of all, shut down and make, you know, make it perfectly clear to Nazis that this is not an acceptable way to be or an acceptable thing to be. And this is where I actually like the reframing that some people have offered, um, which is very convincing that says the question is not whether or not it's okay to punch a Nazi. The question is whether or not it's okay to be a Nazi. And if you've made that decision, then maybe consequences will follow. Um, the historical reality is that, that you know, if you allow people to speak, uh, there's this sort of liberal theology that assumes that reason defeats, re- defeats unreason. When if you understand the, the history marketplace of the marketplace of ideas. Right. You understand that this is very rarely the case. You know, the Trump election is a very good example of this in which unreason is, is powerful. 
um, unreason does not respond to reason. You cannot convince a white supremacist that they're wrong. Um, you have to defeat them by material means, um, and this is one of those means. Um, what is so effective and interesting and useful about Richard Spencer being punched at this moment in time is that, and this gets back to what happened to me as well, is that it's a moment in which people are, in the aftermath of the election, really grappling with questions of legitimacy and questions of struggle and questions of violence, because you've got a lot of just liberals today saying, well, I mean, he is a Nazi after all. You know, I believe in, in certain principles that I've been taught. Um, and yet, Captain America punched Nazis. And yet, my grandfather, and my grandfather, this is true of, my grandfather killed Nazis. Um, not because it was a radical thing to do, but because it was what you do. Um, and so I think this is a very productive conversation that is being had in the mainstream media. If, if a year or two ago you had said we would be talking about the legitimacy of punching Nazis on the front page of the New York Times or in Teen Vogue or in, you know, or that the <laughs> National Park Service would be tweeting the things that it's tweeting, then, you know, you know, we, we would, you know, I would have told you you're crazy. And so we're living in incredibly interesting times. Um, and I think these questions of legitimacy that are being raised um, in this moment are really productive because it's a question of taking uh, these mobilized, um, frustrated, uh, outraged, often liberals um, and splitting them, right? Some of them will be able to be mo mobilized toward more radical ends and some of them will flow back into some you know, version of democratic party hegemony in the future. Ethical or, or moral questions aside, one one question I have is whether emphasizing violence, not ever engaging in it, but em a certain emphasis on it, can lead to a fetishization of tactics over movement building and strategy, uh, the latter two being things that the left has a lot of work to do on. Um, is is there sort of like a romanticization of, of street violence um, uh, and maybe a sort of vanguardist attitude of the left getting that, that can allow the left to kind of get ahead of where it is in terms of its actual capacity? Absolutely, and it is a question of whether or not you're, you're getting ahead of things. Um, you know, there have been people who have been engaging in, you know, in Nazi punching for many, many years. Um, and in those moments, in other moments, other historical uh, contexts, it may have been a close to irrelevant political tactic, right? Um, but what we're seeing, I think, today is that it's very much at the center of mainstream anxieties and debates. Um, we should always be wary of the way that certain tactics get fetishized, but we also have to be aware that the tactic of nonviolence is probably the most fetishized uh, you know, tactic in, in U.S. liberalism because it enters into movement building as a break on struggles. It's, you know, you've got, for example, as just one example, protesters in the inaugural facing more than 10 years on felony riot charges, and yet people are still talking about property violence um, as being unnecessarily, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> provocative or aggressive or a bad tactic. Um, and so I think, if anything, there's a lot of fetishization going on all around um, and that the first things that need to be defetishized, the first things that need to be critically grappled with are uh, certain assumptions, what I call theological assumptions about nonviolence, the assumption that history moves forward through, again, through reason, through people getting together and conversing and good ideas defeat bad and we're all nonviolent and then suddenly the world gets better, when that's never how these things have happened. We don't have civil rights because of nonviolent struggle convincing white people that they were wrong. 
we have civil rights, a very limited accomplishment, we should you know, be clear, because nonviolent movements that were militant, that were also engaged in self-defense, existed alongside openly combative and violent movements, and because people were rioting in the streets and rebelling and demanding justice and appealing to the ethical foundations of the country, um, as well as pushing beyond those foundations to demand equality. Just as we're having these conversations today, in part because, not because people suddenly realized that mass incarceration and police murder were wrong, but because people took to the streets of Ferguson and Baltimore aggressively, violently, burning um, things down in an attempt to press forward this conversation. I want to end by turning to the question of movement building more broadly. And I've been involved in the left since probably, I guess, the mid to late 19. 90s um, as a teenager, and this is the first time where I've seen the common sense understanding of people active on the left being that our goal is to win majority support and govern. Um, For all of my time on the left, it's been a presumption that that would be nice to do at some point, but really the common sense understanding being that our role is to play defense and to protest. What do you see as the path forward for the left under Trump um, in terms of both fighting the far right, um, but also dealing with the neoliberal establishment that allowed them to win? And then a related question is, what do you see the relationship in the movements that are going on um, between the left and uh, liberal liberals who in the past have been more tied to that neoliberal establishment? I think we live in a very particular historical moment. I mean, I think these, uh, you know, the question of power has been posed in a way that it hasn't been posed in the past. There was no accident that when we were first engaging in political organizing, it was on a very small scale or was on the negative side. In other words, the pushing back against, the protesting against, rather than the question of creating and building um, or or taking power, seizing power. Um, The world has been transformed. You know, we're talking about Latin America. We're talking about um, the... Uh, emergence of things like Occupy, but also the indignados in Spain about Tahrir Square and about the ways in which people are taken to the streets and trying to seize power and push forward transformation. This raises dramatically different questions. And here, of course, Bernie Sanders emerges not as a protagonist of this, but as an echo um, of movements in the streets. Um, Bernie Sanders, the fact that we could be living under the presidency of of an avowed socialist um, is unprecedented and it's the it's the long-term impact of these kind of struggles in the streets and pushing forward of a different kind of politics and the question is really how to push that forward how to broaden our scope without selling it out to uh, the political establishment to the Democratic Party Um, and there's very little I think that can be said in terms of how that struggle should happen aside from what I think people are very importantly pushing and driving home today namely the fact that we need to be open to Uh, people radicalizing themselves. We need to be open to liberals uh, moving to the left. Um, This is nothing new. Occupy was a huge moment in which many, many uh, liberals or people who would otherwise have been liberal became radicalized. And it's messy and it's complicated, but it's something that we need to engage with. Um, And the future question is going to be how it is that that is done. I'm firmly of the belief uh, that it is not to be done through elections, although elections may result from it. 
I'm pretty firmly of the belief that it emerges in the streets um, by people organizing in the streets. Um, I also, though, believe that it doesn't necessarily, and this kind of follows from what we said earlier, it doesn't necessarily emerge from people slowly, gradually being convinced um, that the old ways were wrong and that the new ways are better. I think it becomes spectacularly uh, as well. I think people observing from afar even what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore has a dramatic effect on how they view the world, you know, whether they think that you know, we already live in a state of equality and should stop whining or that we need to continue fighting um, and that there are people still suffering very much under the consequences of structured white supremacy and inequality. Um, so I think we need to push forward in the streets and we need to be very wary of the co-optation of the Democratic Party. I would love to see the Democratic Party disintegrate into a thousand pieces. Um, and I think the Republican Party itself um, is on the verge of some kind of similar collapse so that we may see a dramatic reorientation of the two-party system uh, in the coming years. Um, and that's something that's not only need to be seen as an opportunity, but actually as a threat. You know, if the Democrats put forward a populist uh, candidate, which they will probably attempt to do, they will be doing so in an attempt to save a really rotten edifice. Um, and I, I think we need to think hard and debate hard and struggle hard over what it would mean to engage in elections at the same time that we're necessarily building movements in the streets. But what we need to be doing now is building uh, a defense against Trumpism, which means fighting the right, the radical right, fighting the Richard Spencers, fighting the Milos, but also fighting, uh, you know, the government policies that Trump is going to be pushing through, uh, building, and I've argued for this before, building direct community self-defense against deportation, for example, making it as impossible as we can for Trump to deport the three million, you know, uh, migrants that he claims he wants to deport, um, and building community self-defense against the police, because uh, it's no coincidence that the, you know, that the border you know, union uh, and the police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, endorsed Trump um, because these are kind of two sides of the same white supremacist coin. And the police are going to be increasingly aggressive in the years that come. Um, and we're going to see heightened struggles over police brutality and police violence, in particular against black and brown people. We need to be on guard and building uh, alternative institutions in communities capable of resisting these. George, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week or two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, Jeffrey Brodsky, and Liza Yeager. Music by Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And also, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and so does telling all of your friends. The more propaganda on our behalf, the better. Next week, we'll be talking to Mark Light about austerity and the rise of the far right. Right.